Hello and welcome to The Book Room, a podcast of conversations with writers whose works have contributed to decolonizing literature. My name is Sama Sabawi and I am your host. I'm speaking to you from my home on Cooling Country in Melbourne and the conversation you're going to hear took place over Zoom with my guest on Cooling Country too. I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present and to extend my respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening with us today. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal. I'm delighted to share my conversation with the incredible Tony Birch, author, poet and activist. It was recorded in January this year as part of a series of webinars presented by APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. And again, we'll be joined towards the end of our conversation by next month's guest on the podcast. So be sure to stick around to meet them. Enjoy the show. And now, without further ado, it is my absolute honor to introduce our guest, um, Tony Birch is the author of three novels, the best-selling The White Girl, winner of the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Award for Indigenous Writing, and shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary Prize. He is also the author of Ghost River, winner of the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing, and Blood, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2012. He is also the author of Shadow Boxing and three short story collections, Father's Day, The Promise and Common People. In 2017, he was awarded the Patrick White Literary Award for his contribution to Australian literature. In 2021, he will release two new books, so watch out for these. Um, one is a poetry book titled Whisper Songs and also a new short story collection, Dark as Last Night. We're looking forward to reading those. Both books will be published by University of Queensland Press. Um, Tony Birch's website is tony-birch.com. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. I feel it's a real honor. Um, I was obviously um, the surprise guest writer at the um, last book club, which was, I think, in December or November, but whatever, it was wonderful to listen that night. So I, I feel um, really privileged to be invited um, to talk to your guest. Well, the privilege is all ours. Um, so let's warm up a little bit. I'd like to begin by um, saying I've, I've done a little bit of research on you and your bloodlines. They carry white Irish Barbadian convict. Afghani immigrant and Aboriginal heritage, which sounds to me like you are the quintessential story of this land. How do you reconcile all these identities and which one of them, if any, uh, plays a more significant role in your artistic expression, your poetries and your stories? Well, I suppose, um, I mean, on, to be honest, growing up, I've never had a conflicted sense of my identity. And that's partly, I think, because that my identity is really linked to, to being in family. So when I think of my identity, I've, I've always thought of my, my place in my family, my extended family and my lineage. So um, it wasn't until I suppose more recent years that people 
I suppose, ask or require us to, to choose or to decide to be one thing or another. So I really felt that growing up, I was just part of a really important, um, very mixed family. So that, you know, in my family, not only do we have different so-called identities ethnically, but we have strong um, Muslim family members, mm -hmm. strong Christian family members, you know, so we had uh, all sorts of mixes. I suppose that what my writing is dominated by it is, is certainly um, issues to do with my Aboriginal sense of self, which is very central to me, have been important um, in my writing. But I think more generally, and when you think about those mixes of people in my genealogy, my writing is really to try and deal with issues of inequality and injustice so that whether I be thinking of the um, abuses of Aboriginal people in my family, or whether I be thinking of the abuses of someone like, um, I'm a direct descendant of a, of a man, um, Prince Moody, who was um, enslaved in Van Diemen's land, mm -hmm. here from Barbados in the 1850s. And I feel a very strong connection to a person who, um, yeah, was was forced to move halfway around the world and leave a family in Barbados and then was enslaved in Australia for 14 years. So that connection is very important. But to be honest, growing up, and I think this is the case for a lot of Aboriginal people who grew up in the inner cities of Australia, is that I'm also very strongly attached to the notion of class, which a lot of people, you know, sort of forget about in Australia. So um, I grew up working class and, yeah, working class for Aboriginal people, for, for poorer white people, um, mm. there are a lot of affinities there, which I think people have lost a sense of. So that I'm very interested in the notion of in a country like Australia, which claims to be, you know, an equitable um, country, it's not clearly. And one, one of the inequities um, is about the difference between people who have money and people who don't have money. And the people who don't have money are, are people in my family. Yeah, you know, whether they came here from from the Punjab, as um, one of my family members did, or from Barbados, or from as convicts, um, they've always been marginalised people. So they're the people I write about. Well, your your writing style um, is is uh, brings uh, these characters to us. Um, I know even in, in the White Girl, you've got the Afghani. Um, the Afghani uh, Yusuf the Camelier, and you've got uh, the Jewish doctor, uh, Dr. Singer. Um, and so you're showing that even as far back in, in history as the 1960s, which to some of the younger people seems like ages ago, um, that, that there was this, um, there was this uh, diversity. Um, and that, and and you know, so that's that's really interesting. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but I also wanted to to point that um, just reading your work, your your style is is characterized by this um, the ease of of a plot that just makes sense. It's linear. Um, uh, it explores monumental themes in really simple, accessible, and and very powerful language. Um, it, you know that the simplest uh, combination of words leaves you gutted because of the big meanings that they carry. Um, and so I was I was really moved by the white girl. Uh, and I actually read it several times. And then I read uh, that you wrote the draft in eight weeks. And so I'm, I'm going to have to ask you this straight out. And I'm doing it on behalf of all the aspiring writers out there. What's your secret? How do you write a draft of a book like that in eight weeks? 
Well, I think it's, I've been asked the question enough times to know that I shouldn't have made the statement. And- um, the, the, Well, you shouldn't because it's made us all feel really bad. <laughs> well, the, the, no, I blame the journalist. I, I'll blame Paul Daly, who's a lovely guy. <laughs> um, he forgot the second half of the sentence because what I said was, I wrote a draft in eight weeks, which was very rough. And then the second draft took me a year. And he, <laughs> he forgot to add that bit. So to be honest, I had, a, I had this novel in the sense of a story I wanted to tell in my head for several years. And I had a lot of notes. And because I, until the end of June last year, when I retired from academia, I, for the last, all of my publishing life, I've always worked full time at the same time. And I literally had a period of time when I knew that I could dedicate myself to getting a draft done and I could do it uninterrupted from work because I wasn't working. And it was really just a pragmatic decision. And then once I had that draft down, um, I had a sense of what the book was. But to be honest, in combination with working over the next year, obviously working with my editor, um, getting feedback from people, it took a lot of reshaping and there was a lot of what, you know, what we call structural editing in the sense of moving scenes, of shifting the timelines a little bit. So that um, I just think to say to all the young writers, just ignore that comment um, because it, it's it, not that it's not true, but it doesn't make any sense to, to, to say. I mean, and because <laughs> that comment, if someone doesn't like the book, they can just say, well, it only took him eight weeks. No wonder it didn't work. <laughs> Well, thank you for explaining that. Um, I guess my next question is something I, I, it kept just popping into my head as I was reading. So in The White Girl, and I hope that uh, people who are listening today who haven't yet read the book to just go and get it. Um, so this, this book, you write about the ties and the relationships between Aboriginal women and their daughters and their granddaughters uh, and their friends. And you brilliantly juxtapose the softness, um, um, sorry, the, the, the softness and, and, and the tenderness and the love between mm -hmm. mother, daughter and between grandmother and daughter. You juxtapose that so beautifully against the hatred and the racism in Australia's colonial past, um, you know, with, with Sergeant Flo and, and uh, the way the system, the, you know, feels the act and, and taking custody and, and you know, thinking that they're protecting families when they're tearing them apart. But you've, you've how, how do you do that? How, uh, first of all, why did you choose to write through the lens of uh, women? And how do you do your research to find Odette's voice inside of you, the voice of the grandmother caring for her granddaughter? I, I've, it's just, I could believe that it was Odette. It was a woman grandmother talking. How were you able to, to achieve that? Well, you, you've never met my grandmother. Um, <laughs> I think, firstly, the reason I chose to, to focus on women mm. is that um, I had done research, in fact, that so I worked as a historian. Uh, yeah, I, I did a PhD in history and, and taught Aboriginal history at Melbourne University. And one of my main research projects was to look at the way that Aboriginal women had been, you know, the really strong grassroots activists in Australia 
for all of the 20th century or a lot of the 20th century. And part of their um, political campaigning was around letters, was around writing. So I'd done a lot of research on Aboriginal women's writing. So the sorts of um, things that they were demanding, you know, caring for their children, not having their children stolen from them, et cetera, I knew that. Uh, but more importantly, I think that one is I wanted to focus on women because I see women in my life um, and particularly older women as being really heroic and very courageous and leading our families and communities. Mm. Two is that you're, you're exactly right that in choosing to have women as the, the central characters of the book, I then had to make a decision about their relationship to colonial violence. Mm -hmm. And I made a decision well before I started the novel that it, although you know, the violence is on the periphery of this novel all the time, we know the history that these women are dealing with and we know the potential for violence is, is ever present in Odette and Sissy's life. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want it to really penetrate in the sense that I wanted the novel to be a novel about love and tenderness and in a really tactile, physical way, as much as a spiritual way. So, you know, everyone has talked about the what are called the bath scenes in the novel, and I wanted to convey the the the, the beauty and and touch between Odette and Sissy. And really, to be honest, that is drawing on. Yeah, I didn't find it hard to write with women and, and girls as the central characters because I was drawing on my own history and experience of, of being surrounded by women in my life. So, yeah, my grandmother and my mother, um, aunties, uh, my sisters, and I have four daughters and they're, they're adults now. And all of the ways that they express love is ways that I've experienced. And, and it doesn't have to be, by the way, through women. So... Today, I each week, I take care of one of my grandchildren. And today, it was my grandson, Archie, who's two. And, you know, it's the same. He loves to rub my back when I'm hugging him. So I was just carrying him. From, oh, he fell over and I picked him up and I was taking him to the other room. And I was holding him and he just involuntarily almost just starts rubbing your back. So I love that. And I suppose learning that from women it's also something for me is important as a man so mm. that um so that my my love for my grandchildren is is, is physical yep. as well and um so it's about how i think physical touch really matters and as we find out in the novel it matters to women such as another character wanda who who doesn't experience the touch of women in her life you know yeah and, yeah. and caressing yeah. And it really almost destroys her. Yeah. She asked if she can get a hug. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. paragraph is the toughest paragraph of writing I've ever yeah. done. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Um, the other comment I wanted to make about um, the book for people who uh, want to read it is, is that it is actually really nuanced. It wasn't black and white. It wasn't that all black fellows were, were saints and all white people were evil. In fact, you were able to show oppression and, and, um, and tyranny um, go across the board. So you had the, the, the white uh, family, uh, the Keynes, I think. Yeah. yeah. So they, you had them uh, and you've situated them in, 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 where, where the father is an abusive um, 
person who is abusing his son. We guess that he might have been abusing his wife, although that's, that's not very clear in, in the writing. Um, and, and then there's those moments of kindness between people across the color divide who are oppressed, like um, Henry, Henry Lamb, who's uh, um, he's mentally challenged. And so he gets picked on, although he's white. And that solidarity between him and Odette. And I just thought that was beautiful, that it brings me to the question of solidarity. Um, and I want to hear from you about your thoughts when it comes to solidarity. What is, what is the job of uh, a writer uh, when it comes to expressions of solidarity? Is that important for you in your work? Um, and you know, what, what is your, your most, um, what is an experience that you would like to share with us on that question? Well, I think, I mean, as a writer that, and here talking as much as a, 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 I taught writing for many years and, um, yeah. One of the issues that I would say to my work is that all of my writing, and yeah, the, the word is often discussed as political in the sense that all of my writing deals with the issues of oppression in different ways and in a way that really, I want to express to readers that the people on the margins of society need to be central. We need to put a focus, a lens on people who we ignore and look at their lives in a more enriched way so that um, I'm, I'm really interested in the people that we ignore. And when I say we, even as Aboriginal people, we can ignore people outside our communities that are equally desperate. So I'm interested in, my sense of this is if any person is going to act with injustice against another person, they you must do it with a full knowledge of who that person is. And it's why the notion of silence and a form of censorship is ever present in Australia. Now, I think our, our viewers will know this, that one of the things that has happened in Australia with the terrible violence against refugees and asylum seekers is to try to make these people invisible, to put them in places where we can't contact them. Mm -hmm. There's been real attempts to not see the faces of these people, to not know the names of these people, to not hear the words of these people, to not know their stories. And my view is if you're going to imprison a person and you're going to torture them and treat them in such an inhuman way, you need to look at that person in the face directly and know who they are and then can you still act and i think yeah. we have allowed these horrible actions to occur in this country by making people invisible so my view of issues of, of solidarity are that if if we we focus on people who require justice i hope and think that more of us will will realize that what happens to people like aboriginal people like refugees and asylum seekers, like people from your own community, your own nation, I think people will be moved to not act or to act in a, in a way of solidarity. And I suppose then to say instances of that, I think that what I try to say to young people, and I'm not, I'm not going down the track of getting into a heavy discussion on you know, so-called identity politics, but we now have, I think, you know, in the Western world, there's been a move to, I think, sometimes quite segmented identities. And I think some of those are empowering. So we know that in communities that have really come to the fore and demanding, demanding of, of, of you know, um, Western society that people be recognised, I understand that. But in the end, if we're going to tackle the really major issues, 
around us, we need to build solidarity and networks across those communities and act together. So, you know, I saw your lovely photos at the Invasion Day rally and, you know, to see the, to see other people than Aboriginal people on those days is absolutely vital to us to know that things are moving, you know, think there is an energy there. And likewise, of course, um, you know, in regard to thinking of issues like um, refugees and people seeking sanctuary, people seeking um, support, it's one of the um, major issues that I've been involved in um, in recent years. So, uh, so yeah. to put it just directly as an Aboriginal person, if there are crimes committed against other communities on Aboriginal land, I need to take responsibility for that. And a lot of Aboriginal people think that way. When we see what's happening to other communities on our land, we see mm -hmm. that as an injustice that we have to speak out about. Okay. Um, it is time for you to maybe tell us a little bit about the white girl, set the scene. And everybody just relax in your chairs and listen to an excerpt read to you by um, the author himself. Okay, so um, for people who haven't read the book, the only thing we'll say briefly, it's a book about primarily the relationship between Odette Brown and her granddaughter Sissy. And it's about Odette's um, fight and struggle to protect her granddaughter who is under threat of removal from her grandmother by a policeman, a new policeman who comes into the town of Dean, a, a man called Sergeant Lowe. And more widely, the book is about the attacks on Aboriginal people and the attempts to steal children from their family during this terrible period um, of post-war Australia when mm -hmm. so many thousands of children were, were removed. I'm just going to read a short scene that I've never read um, aloud before. And it's a scene where Odette meets another Aboriginal woman, Dolores. And Dolores talks about the experience of losing her own children. And the reason why I've chosen this is that while, as I said, that essentially this is a book about love and tenderness, I've decided to read this scene because I also want to make the point for our listeners and readers that these crimes are terrible crimes and they had a devastating effect on the women and men who were affected by them. So it's a very straightforward scene where Dolores is telling Odette what happened to her children, two daughters. The first time the welfare lady set eyes on my babies, Dolores said, I knew I had no help of keeping them. She took one hand away from the edge of the table and slammed it against her chest, alarming Odette. From that day on, that bitch followed us round like a bloodhound. My eldest girl, Colleen, she was the first to go. We'd put her in the local school, a Catholic school. My husband thought it might work in our favour, putting on the God Act. He was in the Merchant Navy. He'd been away at sea six weeks, and then his pay stopped coming to me from the company. I never knew it at the time, but he jumped ship and took off with one of the girls. I haven't laid eyes on him since. Dolores took a worn handkerchief out of the sleeve of her cardigan and wiped her nose. I ran out of money in no time. No sooner was I spotted in the line outside the house of charity that Colin was taken. They picked her up from school. Did you fight it? Odette asked. Fight? There was nothing I could do. Dolores put her fist into her mouth and bit down on a knuckle to stop herself from sobbing. You know what the nun at the school said when I fronted her? Do you want to know what she said? Odette shook her head. 
she said, this is best for you. We're doing this to help you as much as help your daughter. I wanted to spit in that woman's face. I went straight home and pulled a case out of the cupboard. I poked some air holes in it with a screwdriver and put my baby girl Iris in that case with her clothes. Dolores took a deep breath and then we took off. Odette wasn't certain what she'd just been told. Did you say you put your daughter in a suitcase? Dolores wiped her nose and laughed hysterically. I sure did. That was my plan. She laughed again. It didn't work out though. We only got as far as the bus station. I was ready to jump on any bus that would get us out of the city. I didn't care where it was heading. And then bang, the case sprung open and poor little Iris, she fell out. Dolores looked down as if the child was on the floor at her feet. She stood up and began circling the table. Odette wanted her to stop both her manic pacing and the story, which she didn't want to hear, but Dolores couldn't stop. I mean, it was funny, really funny, she cried. We both laughed. My beautiful baby girl, she was giggling, and I thought I was going to wet my pants. Dolores walked over to the back door and looked outside, concerned she was being overheard. I hadn't noticed that there was a copper right there. He'd been a couple of footsteps behind us the whole time, writing a ticket for some fellow who'd parked his car illegally. The copper saw what happened and I knew we were in trouble. I knew it, but I couldn't stop laughing. Everyone waiting for the buses, they all thought I'd gone mad. After Iris was taken away, I was put into one of those hospitals, you know, for sick people. And by then I was mad. Thank you for reading that excerpt. It's difficult um, to listen to. It's difficult uh, to imagine. Um, and it was, it was one of the, the parts that were very emotional to read. Uh, so I'm just going to say to everyone out there that we are ready for Q&A. So if you have your questions uh, for Tony, please uh, write it in the Q&A uh, part of this uh, chat room. Tony, another part that really got me, um, and when I was listening to you talking before about the refugees and how we keep them invisible, we keep them in detention centers, um, was just the way oppression really works. It's like there's a blueprint and it gets passed around. Uh, in The White Girl, there is a part where um, uh, Jack, uh, what's his name? The fellow that she meets at the train station, Jack. Jack Haynes. Haynes, Jack Haynes. So there's the, this part where, where Jack Haynes, um, she, she, Odette is sitting in the, in, on the platform talking to Jack Haynes and he tells her he has an exemption certificate which allows him to travel, to travel without getting a permit. And this whole idea that, that uh, you could uh, confine people to geographic locations so that you can keep them out of sight, out of mind. Um, out of mixing uh, with people they, they, they should not be mixing with um, and that you would need a travel permit in order to go get treatment uh, in the capital uh, and that you, you cannot be outside of your geographically assigned areas. For me as a Palestinian who comes from uh, a land of uh, uh, occupation and where the permit system manifested itself in physical structures of dividing 
uh, the people with walls and watchtowers. This really resonated with me. And more so it resonated with me when, when Jack was saying, I have to do what I need to do to survive. I got this exemption certificate, which says I cannot mix with other Aborigines. Um, and I'll need to do what I need to do to be on the good side of the system. You are able to really articulate the point of view of these things, change takes a long time. People need to do whatever they need to do to survive, to get by. Um, and everybody's trying to do what's best for their families. Fast forward to the time we're living in now. Um, what is the best kind of advocacy or re reaction do you see to the injustices? And let's talk about the, the refugees made invisible um, behind walls. What does it take for us to be able to see them and bring them out of being invisible? Well, I think there are several things. One is that um, we need to ensure that um, people who have suffered this shocking indignity or people who have fled here for similar reasons or family members is that we, we can't simply advocate for such people. We have to make sure that we allow those people to speak for themselves. So just as a sort of personal example, I was asked to speak at a refugee support rally some time ago, earlier in the year. And my first question was, who is speaking from the refugee community? In other words, mm -hmm. who do you have speaking who are, who are coming out of these hotels? Who do you have speaking who has been on Manus Island? And I said, you know, I wouldn't speak at any event unless I ensure that those people are given the, the premium, that they speak first. And then if they think that there's a space for me to speak, I would be happy to. And the organisers, to their credit, they passed that email on to people who had just been released. And I did get a direct email back from a person who had been just released from hotel, um, um, sorry, being locked up in a hotel. Yeah. And one of the things that he said was he, 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 he welcomed what I said, but he said, well, we want to know what Aboriginal people think about what's happening. So mm -hmm. they, they welcomed that. But so essentially, I think that we can't be simply advocating for the rights of people. We have to find every means possible to make sure we, we stand aside and, and give people their voice. The same way that um, you know, Aboriginal people, our stories have been corrupted, co-opted mm -hmm. by other people. We need to make sure that Aboriginal people get to tell our own story. So, so that is that is that is one of the first issues. And the second issue is to to really put pressure on governments in Australia and to demand transparency, to demand that again. Yeah, I would say to Scott Morrison, if you think it is okay to um, keep these people um, imprisoned, I want you to tell me what their names are. I want you to tell me where they come from. Tell me about their families. Tell me about their children. Tell me about their parents they haven't seen. Tell me about the land they haven't seen for seven years and eight years while you've imprisoned them. And then tell me why you think you still feel it's okay to imprison them as a person who attends church every Sunday. Now, yeah. if Scott Morrison can tell me that, um, at least I think, well, okay, he can take responsibility for his violence. At the moment, politicians don't take responsibility for their violence because they they enjoy the, the, the invisibility. They enjoy the yeah. privilege of the invisibility of the other. And Absolutely. I think that we need to make sure that people are put on the spot more about and take responsibility for their actions. Mm -hmm. But for me, again, thinking here as an Aboriginal person is that 
I have a very strong view that this, you know, yeah, when people say, you know, sovereignty is never ceded, when people say that this is still Aboriginal land, well, then I welcome that. And I also say, well, then, therefore, as a sovereign person, I need to make sure that when people are mistreated on Aboriginal land that I speak up about it. And I don't, I don't say that in any heroic way yeah. at all. Um, okay. It's a responsibility. And we have a responsibility to, to anyone who has been mistreated on Aboriginal land. Uh, we have a question from Mark. He says, we hear a lot about resilience. That is a requirement for getting by and staying afloat in our so-called challenging times. Do you consider resilience more an internal personal attribute or is it more about a person's interpersonal, ecological and spiritual connectedness? Well, it's both. It's a lovely question. Um, I don't want to go into it in, in too much detail, but um, I come from a... Um, well, I come from a history of, of extreme childhood violence, living in an extremely violent house. And um, I was told by a, a counsellor once that I had incredible resilience and that as children growing up in very traumatic households, or as you would know, in traumatic war zones, um, it has a lifetime effect on you. And her view was that resilience was a quality that a lot of children in those situations develop and that I, I, I have that. But I think what's so important about the question here is that it doesn't matter how resilient you feel, you can feel so depleted when you see, even as an adult. So when I first saw the way that the Howard government, and I'm not a, by the way, I don't want to excuse Labor governments, but the way that the Howard government was treating refugees and when we started to see the shocking um, concentration camps set up at places like Woomera and that this was allowed to happen on Aboriginal land, I felt really demoralised by that. And so your resilience can really suffer. The point that's relevant here, which goes to the heart of the question, the only way that you regain your strength or your 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 resilience is the fact that you need one to have some perspective to think about well you're not the person behind that barbed wire those people are suffering greatly so they're the people who are really going through hell and they're the people you need to support but you need to link up with other people you need yeah. to find like-minded people one to to convince yourself that you're not going crazy and two that even if it's a, a struggle that you think you may never win or it's a lifetime struggle, as long as you're engaged with other people, you, you yeah. get great strength and resilience from that. Yeah. So that, yeah so the, I'm sure that the Palestinian people, when you consider the shocking decades of abuses and trauma they've suffered, um, internal resilience would never be enough to get people through. I'm sure it's family, community, and it's... It's like-minded voices. That's what we need. That's exactly right. Question from Caroline. It strikes me that someone who didn't know anything at all about Aboriginal history could learn from just about every page of the white girl. This is so true. Were you conscious of a purpose of teaching while you were writing? And uh, she writes in brackets, um, I don't mean that in a didactic way. So really, I'm just going to say, I agree, I agree with the comments. Um, I mean, 
again, as a writer, writing teacher, as much as a writer, I've always said, yeah, you, when you're writing, you're first writing a story, you've got to be true to the story and, and make sure you're guided by the story and not get too affected by, you know, considering hmm. readers too early. Uh, how, what would they think of this? What would they think of that? Um, what I would say is that I definitely felt that um, I hope that in writing the book that people would learn from it. They would learn about the, the shocking um, imposition on Aboriginal people through the, through the various acts, through mm -hmm. the hypocrisies of identity, um, learn about the incredible courage of women and their, their ability to keep family together under great duress, and certainly with men like Jack Haynes as well. So, yes, I, I did hope and do hope for that, and, and I've, been, I've been really fortunate that the book I know has been picked up by you know, a, a lot of schools, been mm -hmm. taught from over year 10 to year 12, and... Um, at some tertiary level. So I, I have a couple of really champions of my work in Japan and they're, they're already teaching the white girl in Tokyo. Um, and, and can I just interrupt and say for the Arabs watching this, it's getting translated into yeah, Arabic. It's translated into Arabic for a publisher in Cairo, mm -hmm. uh, which is just remarkable. So yes, I, I would hope, like I do as a reader, I hope that I'm educated through the reading that I do. Um, and I think going back to your lovely um generous comment you need to do that i think or i do in a nuanced way so that you need to do it in a way that is open enough for the re reader to to interpret to let to the reader to think and um i i hope that it has a long life as a book that will be read by people as an educational text beautiful from uh sarah Sergeant Lowe seemed like such a timely character given the global Black Lives Matter movement and the abolitionist politics that has entered mainstream discourse. To what extent, if any, was this a deliberate choice to write this character or was it simply a matter of this character being overdue? Um, certainly when I was writing the novel, I wasn't thinking of the, the contemporary politics or the contemporary situation, but there is a, is a, I think in the question, there is a really important link and continuum. And that is that Sergeant Lowe, is, he is a, he's a terrible person. Um, he believes that what he, he wants to do in controlling the life of Sissy and Odette is, if not for their own benefit, simply something that they, they have to accept. And what I wanted to do in writing Sergeant Lowe is to bring, get this point across that there are men and some women, but largely men who work for regimes or people who are in positions of power who have control of the lives of vulnerable people and they act in despicable ways against those people. And the point being is they never resile from that view. So Sergeant Lowe is a person who would never think that he may be harming people or even consider the harm he does to people. He just considers that what he is doing is for his benefit, not for their benefit, for his benefit. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I think one of the responses to this book, a woman commented on the book and she was a, a black um, woman from South Africa. She said that what struck her about reading the Sergeant Lowe character, it reminded her that there are men under the system of apartheid in South Africa who went to their graves believing that what they did was for the better 
and they never ever felt that or their conscience didn't shift so that we know that in Bill Shea's case the other policeman he's a bit of a failure and what I would say about Bill Shea is that racism actually destroys Bill and he is destroyed because of what he's witnessed and what he is allowed to happen so that he is a different character he's, he's pathetic in some ways but I also I did have sympathy for, for Bill Shea but um, there are many men in Australian history and global history who have treated people appallingly and they never consider that what they have done is wrong. Yeah. Um, we've got a few more questions uh, and they, they're still coming in. So what I'll do is I'll read you maybe the, the last three, yeah. um, if, just all together and, and just give you the floor to, to respond. Okay. So there's one from Jessica. She says, what freedoms or challenges do you find in writing from women's perspectives? Uh, Rhonda asks, she says, your work is incredible, Tony. Do you visit schools? And if so, how do young people respond to your work? And <laughs> Rhonda's being cheeky because she's asking several questions in one. And also, if there's time for a second question, who do you write for? Um, and finally, this is the last question I'll be reading. Can Tony tell us more about the title of the book and why he chose that title? Thank and you. And who's that from? Uh, anonymous. Anonymous. Okay. Yeah, there anonymous. You go. Um, so the first question in writing from the perspective, perspective or about women, the challenges and the freedoms, I would say that um, I didn't feel that I couldn't write um, that way. Um, I felt comfortable and confident that I couldn't. Again, I think that's more from the fact of my own life experience and the work that I'd done. I think what I would say, though, that's really important for the questioner, and I think it's a really great question again, is that I felt enormous sense of responsibility to get it right, and probably greater than any other novel. And it wasn't like, you know, I'm not saying here like a reader might say, oh, you can't write from a woman's perspective, and how dare you? It was, no, I need to show utter respect and love for these female characters, and I felt really deeply responsible about getting it right. And I felt so loyal to Odette and Sissy as characters that it demanded of me to just produce the best writing I could. Now, I know we, we should do that with all our work, but I did feel an extra sense of that. And I welcomed that, by the way. I didn't feel that as a sort of a created a, a tension. I actually really welcomed that responsibility. Um, the second question, I think, was about do I visit schools and what do students think of the work? Or yes, it was. Yeah, that was... yeah I, I've been visiting schools, very fortunate, um, way back to when I published Shadowboxing, which is now 15 years ago. So several of my books have been taught and are taught at schools. Um, I always, I love to visit schools. So I've got any teachers in the audience. I'll come. I never charge. Um, so I charge a Leamington with cream, it has to have cream, and it can't be out of a can, it's gotta be fresh cream, um, because I love talking to school kids. And one of the issues that I find in all of my work is that I just find it refreshing to speak to young people, young people who I find are so switched on, young people you know, young people often get sort of bagged about, you know, the young people of today don't do this and don't do that. I find that the kids that I talk to, they're so um, mature, they're so um, respectful, they're so inquisitive. So 
the conversations I that I have around all my books is, is always something I welcome. And I know with the White Girl, there are several schools in Melbourne that I, I'll be visiting this year. Um, and what was the other question? So the last one was about the title of the book. Oh, yeah, that's, that's an anonymous. Yes. Anonymous. We'll find out who you are. Um, yeah, that's a really great question because, of course, there is no white girl. Um, there is that line, of course, that, um, that that Bill Shea uses when he says to Odette, it's not like she's a white girl. So it was a really um, important notion to play on that idea of whiteness, that it we know that it's a, it's a, there's a lot of discussion around whiteness in um, society today, but it was not, I wouldn't say ironic, but it's about the complexity of colour. So when we think about blackness and whiteness in relationship to our identities, and we think about Black Lives Matter, Aboriginal Lives Matter, you know, sometimes we're talking literally about colour and we understand, you know, and I know this as well as anyone, the first point of of racism is different, you know, someone is a different skin colour or a woman has a, a, a form of headscarf on, um, mm -hmm. someone speaks a, a so-called foreign language. That is the first interaction that we have with the other and the first can displays and conveying of racism comes from that. But in Australia, whiteness and being white is very complex. And what I would say for the questioner, and it comes out in relationship to Sissy, one of the things that people often don't realise in Australian history is that while there was an attempt to create white, literally white skin children through the assimilation, the separation, the caste legislation, the exemption acts, all of that, what we know is that those children, because of their identities, would never really become white. You can never be white. So one of the things that historically that I could say to people here is that if you're an Aboriginal person growing up in an Aboriginal community in the inner city or in a regional town in the 60s, it didn't matter how white you were in the sense of fair skin. As um, a wonderful woman, Aunty Eleanor Harding, once said to me, they still knew who your mother was, they still knew who your grandparents was, and they would always relegate you to the otherness that they were supposedly trying to save you from. So it's a shocking... Um, it's a terrible way to live in some ways that if you are white and Aboriginal as a kid is that you are always caught between these senses of not being black, but you are certainly never um, pure enough to be accepted as, as white anyway. So it was, I suppose, to use a, a title that consciously or not was a title that is all about the hypocrisy of colour in Australia. Thank you for that, um, Tony. And thank you for everyone who sent in questions. I'm so sorry we didn't get through all the questions, but if you maybe want to cut and paste your questions or comments and just leave them beneath the video on our Facebook page, hopefully Tony will have time uh, to come around. I've I don't know. Time. I don't. Even, I don't have a job. I've, I've retired. <laughs> no, he'll he'll respond to your questions um, under the video in the Q and A. Again. So um, stay uh, with us, Tony, because we're coming back to you uh, very shortly. But uh, we do this thing uh, at this time uh, in our in our. Uh, monthly episodes where we reveal who the next author is going to be. Um, and so I'm going to read you a description of the next author. Uh, she is 
Palestinian, Egyptian, Muslim, writer, anti-racism advocate, and Islamophobia scholar. And she is a multi-award winning author of 11 novels published in over 20 countries. She has a postdoctoral uh, research. She is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Sociology at McGuire University, uh, researching the generational impact of the war on terror on Muslim and non-Muslim youth. Her book, Coming of Age in the War of Terror, has just been released, and I'm so lucky to have just received my copy. <laughs> I am truly honored uh, to be welcoming to the show our next month's guest, the brilliant Rhonda Abdel Fattah. Yay, Rhonda. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Rhonda. Um, I just want you to, uh, I mean, I appreciate you popping in for, for just a, a short time, but maybe explain to those watching what this book is about and yeah, what the discussion will be about next time. Can I respond first because I was listening to Tony, my children were wonderful and slept early for once in their lives so I was able to listen um and turn out I just you know every time I listen to you or read your work I'm just so impressed and overwhelmed by first of all how gracious you are and generous um you're always talking about you know looking out and standing with um oppressed people and 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 for me you know, it, it's just so humbling as well because um, we're on stolen land and we should be the ones that are constantly reaching out to you. But every time I hear you speak, you say that over and over again and I just that makes just such an impact on me. Um, and I remember um, last year how much of an impact you had on me with the Black Fire series. I was listening to every single word um, as many times as I could. <laughs> I, down, you know, clicked on that link um, and, you know, it's, you're just so inspiring. One of the things that... Um, you said today, two of the things you said today resonated with my, my work. The first is um, the importance of class. And that came strongly through to me in this book that I've written um, and my work with young people. Um, you know, I went in thinking that it was um, that all Muslim kids and all the non-Muslim kids that I interviewed in Sydney, talking to them about their experiences growing up only ever knowing a world at war on terror, that um, that race would be the clear definer. Um, and what I found pretty quickly was that actually it was the intersection of class and race. So that sometimes and very often actually um, Muslim kids in private, private schools in you know, affluent suburbs had um, just as little knowledge about the war on terror and the racializing impact that it had on communities, say in Western Sydney, um, as non-Muslim kids um, at their school. And that there was this, that it really did come down um, to class and that intersection. So that when I spoke to Western, you know, Muslim kids in Western Sydney and non-Muslim kids in Western Sydney, they were so much more aware um, of the politics of the war on terror. Um, and it really made me think about um, how often we don't um, pay attention to those nuances because it, it also brings up so much potential for, um, you know, richer conversations about how you build solidarity and, and how you educate young people so that they can actually, um, you know, offer empathy and understanding, um, not just across communities, but within their own communities and not just assume that people will be natural allies because they happen to be um, from the same community. Beautiful. So um, I'm waving the book again. Uh, <laughs> go get this book. Uh, Rhonda, do you want to tell us how we can get our hands on this? 
I think it's out in bookstores now. Um, Fantastic. You know, yeah, so. And join us for her next month's conversation. Thank you so much, Rhonda, for popping into the book room. Uh, I look you. forward to interviewing you next month. Uh, I'm going to say some final words. Uh, thank you so much to, of course, our amazing guest, uh, Tony Birch. Uh, the Book Room is presented in partnership with APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, a united national voice advocating for justice and peace for Palestinians. Thank you to Jessica Morrison and Sarah Saleh from APAN for all their work producing the webinar where this conversation was recorded. The Book Room podcast is produced by Lara Week and myself, Sama Sabawi, and we are launching the podcast uh, this Saturday. Uh, technical production for the podcast is by Justin Coe. The artwork and social media are by Lara Shamas and Nahid Elreis composed the music for the show, which you will be hearing in the podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Book Room with Sama Sabawi. Our website will be launched on Saturday, so do check it out, www.inthebookroom.com. And there you will be able to find show notes from today's episodes and links to purchase all the books we've been talking about today, as well as in the past episodes. Now we will leave you with uh, a poem uh, by Tony Birch. And from me and the team at the In the Book Room, I say thank you and goodbye. Tony, over to you. Um, thank you very much. And, and just before I close with the poem, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where, what it's about and where it's from. I also was very um, lucky to read Rhonda's um, book in manuscript form. Um, so I could supposedly what they call an endorsement um, the outline as it's called in the trade but I have to say that um, I was in awe of the book and I, as I said before we came on tonight I obviously know Rhonda's work very well and I know her from 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 many other um, things that she's done and I think that anyone who who wants to get a sense and understanding of the, the terrible history that people such as the Palestinian um, community have, have had to suffer through for decades now, Rhonda's book is really important to know that where we're at and hopefully where we might go. Um, so I'll be also watching in um, next month to that um, conversation. Um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to read a poem. Um, the poem's called Little Man. It is the opening poem in my forthcoming um, collection of poetry called Whisper Songs, which I think will be out um, around June. Um, it's my second poetry collection. And this poem is a poem that is dedicated to my younger brother, as is the collection. Um, my younger brother died suddenly um, coming up to two years in, in March. And um, I went through the difficulty as a writer wanting to write a lot about my brother, but then being quite concerned about whether I was actually, you know, using my own grief or his or his death for, for material, um, to put it crudely. But I realized that I, I wasn't doing that. And not only did I need to write about my younger brother, that I felt in the end that writing about him gave a sense to people of what a wonderful person he was, um, particularly people who, who, who didn't know him. Um, so this poem is called Little Man and it's fairly self-explanatory and just, because I don't know when we'll turn the cameras off, I do also um, 
I want to thank Sama um, for her incredible, generous um, conversation and thoughtfulness, and also for this um, remarkable project. Um, I feel, as I said at the start, very privileged to be involved, and um, I'll certainly spend the year um, now tuning in as, as a as a audience member. So here's the poem, Little Man. Search for you at night beyond the creaking gate, old haunts, street corners, back lanes dressed in rain, big sky darkness. Spoke soft words calling your name, echoes to glimpse light, fell with a dying moon, our whispered songs for you. Face hidden, you refused us, mute, silent brother. We mark you lost, our hidden faces, morning, morning. Until you appeared, brown pools, honey locks, in one hand a guitar, in the other a book, words of gold, music ever true. A song of promise, you sang sweet, I will be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us today in the book room. Next month, I'll be speaking with researcher, playwright, and novelist Rhonda Abdel Fattah about her new nonfiction book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror. I hope you can join us. The book room is presented in partnership with APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, a united national voice advocating for justice and peace for Palestinians. Thank you to Jessica Morrison and Sarah Saleh from APAN for all their work producing the webinar where this conversation was recorded. The Book Room is produced by Lara Week and myself, Samah Sabawi. Technical production is by Justin Coe. Our artwork and social media are by Lara Shamas and Nahid El Reyes composed the music for the show. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at The Book Room with Sama Sabawi. Our website is www.inthebookroom.com where you can find show notes from today's episode and links to purchase all the books we've been talking about today. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps others to find us and we do appreciate it. Thank you and until next time, goodbye.